Crime became a major issue in the 2022 midterm election cycle. We look at the statistics, we see that 113 million adults, 45%, have, an, have had an immediate family member incarcerated for at least one night. The U.S. justice system controls 6.7 million people, more than half of whom are on probation. And if you think this doesn't affect you, your loved ones or your friends, consider that an estimated one in three Americans will be arrested by the age of 23. The American criminal justice system holds almost 2.3 million people in 1,833 state prisons, 122 federal prisons, 1,772 juvenile correctional facilities, 3,134 local jails, 218 immigration detention facilities, and 90 Indian country jails. President Barack Obama, uh, when he was addressing the NAACP conference at the uh, Pennsylvania Convention Center in 2015, put it this way. The United States, he said, is home to 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. Our incarceration rate is four times higher than China's. We keep more people behind bars than the top 35 European countries combined. Recognizing that this level of incarceration has dire societal consequences from disproportionately punishing people of color to exasperating economic inequality, the last few decades have seen a remarkable bipartisan effort, however, to reduce unnecessary incarceration at both the state and federal levels. This is perhaps best seen in the case of the First Step Act, which was passed by Congress on December 21st, 2018, that's a law by President Trump. This law has already cut the federal prison population by several thousand, restored judicial discretion in some drug cases, and retroactively reduced several, uh, certain drug sentences. More recently, cities across the country have seen increases in some crimes, although today's crime levels are no comparison to crime levels of the uh, 1980s and early 1990s. The causes of these increases are complicated, and the pandemic played, of course, a significant role in disrupting communities. Economic uncertainty spiked. After-school programs were shut down. There was greater gun availability. With crime on people's minds, it soon became the focal point uh, last year uh, for many Republican candidates' political campaigns. Vox reported that, in fact, Republicans had spent $157 million on crime-related ads at the national level by November 3rd. And the Wall Street Journal reported that crime was highlighted in more than a third of all congressional campaign television ads that aired after Labor Day in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, two key battleground states. Of course, many factors were at play in the 2022 election, from the economy, uh, which was suffering from inflation, to the candidates themselves. But it's clear that painting an opponent as soft on crime did not necessarily prove to be a ticket to victory, as the Republicans had anticipated. In the Pennsylvania Senate race, for example, Republican candidate Mehmet Oz tried to make an issue of Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman's advocacy for criminal justice reform, such as his support for reducing the number of people who served life sentences in Pennsylvania. Oz's first television ad in the general election claimed John Fetterman wants to release one third of prisoners and eliminate life sentences for murderers. Kind of reminiscent of 1988's campaign when then Vice President George H.W. George Bush criticized his political opponent, Michael Dukakis, for being soft on crime and allowing weekend passes for the criminals in his state of Massachusetts. In the New York state governor's race, Republican Lee Zeldin spent months attacking Democratic incumbent Kathy Hochul on crime and for not uh, substantially rolling back the state's recent bail reforms. One Zeldin campaign ad presented the, an announcer stating, you are looking at actual violent crimes caught on camera in Kathy Hochul's New York and is getting much worse. Here to help me make sense of all of this are Ken W. Good, who's an attorney, 
um, in Texas, who has argued numerous cases before the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, Mr. Good, thank you for being here. Professor Fred Cook, of course, an adjunct professor at Howard University School of Law. And we have uh, Elizabeth uh, Mikotowicz, who is an advocate, an advocate for criminal justice reform and for improving the conditions of prisons. So thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for joining me tonight. I want to open up the floor with your thoughts on um, the idea of making crime a political issue. Did, did it backfire on the GOP, in your view, or has it served to be an effective tool, um, in your view, um, especially now that we're going to be, we're now entering a 2024 election cycle? She would have been, had a bigger impact on the election uh, than it did, but I would say there's some stealth impacts that we have uh, we're seeing and they're continuing. In New York, you currently see the, the governor pushing for changes to the bail reform law. And one of them is to take out the least restrictive condition language. They're negotiating on the budget right now. And uh, I believe that at the end of the day, that will be removed. I think that was be as a direct result of the election. It, she didn't lose, but she got close to losing. And that's the reason why she's demanding that change. I don't think it's really about crime so much as it is about money. You know, a hospital saves $350,000 a year contracting their linen to be washed by inmates instead of paying people a minimum wage. You know, inmate, we work 40 hours a week for $5.25 a month. You know, people were getting hurt on the job. One girl broke her leg. She slipped on the ice doing snow removal. And by the time they brought her to the hospital, they had to re-break her leg because the bone was fusing back together. And this is just free money for them. You know, during the pandemic, all these prisons across America were taking out PPP loans to expand their beds, to expand their wings. They weren't even upkeeping the prisons to make them safe. You know, at Danbury, we had an inch of black mold in the showers and they built a new $80 billion facility just so they could get, you know, a couple more beds. And this is what it's about. They're criminalizing homelessness and, you know, making, fining people for feeding the homeless. And we went from three empty apartments for or three empty properties for every homeless person in America to 29 empty properties for every homeless person in America by the end of the pandemic. And this is why they want to criminalize homelessness and get a free workforce because corporations don't want to pay people a, pay, a minimum wage at all anymore. Yeah, I, I think uh, like uh, Mr. Good said, I, I think that one of the things is that um, the playbook for the so-called Republicans, the conservatives, whatever they choose to be called at the moment, uh, is, is pretty um, predictable. And it is to stoke fear in the populace and the electorate about crime, that they're all going to be victimized by crime and the numbers are through the roof. And you can manipulate the numbers to show most anything you want. Clearly, there have been spikes in crime across America, urban America, not, not urban America. But the rates are nowhere near they were when crime was at its highest in the uh, history of the United States. Um, but but the idea is to continue to get people to be afraid. And 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 the so-called Democrats are not clear enough about what they are doing, why they are doing what they're doing and what the reality of has been produced of their efforts because they run from this accusation that they're soft on crime as opposed to confronting the reality of what crime is. And, and clearly 
perception is reality in a lot of ways. So I'm not I'm not blind to that. But they need to make sure they tell people what is really going on, why and how they are going to be made safe by policies they introduce, and why and how the so-called Republicans really don't have a policy. We know historically you cannot arrest enough people. You cannot lock up enough people to solve crime. That that doesn't work. It's never worked. But uh, I think that it's still a big issue that the uh, Republican playbook requires their members to use, and they continue to try to keep the, the public afraid. Well, I will say I disagree with that uh, uh, pretty strongly because I think public safety is an increasing issue, and I think that it's especially a problem in our urban areas. And I think you can trace it to policies from the left of really uh, called reform but have, that have turned out to be decriminalization. And I think people wanting to feel safe, it should be uh, not a left or a right issue. We should all agree to that. And instead, we're talking about it's really a money issue. It's really we get to be more public safe, public safety by by decriminalizing crime. And I just absolutely disagree with that. This is a winning issue for the Republicans if the Democrats uh, allow this status quo to continue, because um, the reason why it wasn't this last time is there are people across the country in our non-urban areas that still feel safe. That is not going to continue. The status quo is not con- uh, will not continue because it just can't continue. And so I think it's a fallacy to say this is a made-up issue. It is a real issue, and it's causing public safety issues. Yes, but you're focusing on the wrong thing. I was a criminal because I was backed into a corner and I had no other option. I went to the battered women's shelter begging for help after a man bashed my head into the point where my skull was showing. The doctors gave me opioids. I said I didn't want them because I was pregnant. They threatened me with child protective services. So I'm taking opioids now and they tell me I'm on too small of a dose. I lost my housing because of this man. I lost everything because of this man. And I ended up selling drugs just to try and survive. I didn't get my life together until Janet Mills took over from LePage in Maine and she expanded Maine Care, which allowed me to get counseling. It allowed me to get drug rehabilitation. It allowed me to get mat treatment. It gave me a fair chance. If you want crime to go down, you need to give people housing. You need to give them whatever medications they need. Because when I got out of prison, I had $1,300 of medications that the prison had me on and no way to pay for it. So now I'm detoxing off of these psych meds and I'm losing my mind. I'm relapsing. Guess what? I went back to prison. Our criminal, justice, our, criminal justice system is not made to be the uh, mental health facility or the drug rehab facility. I mean, our criminal justice system is made to be, has there been a crime committed? Who's the victim? What is the punishment? What okay, you're fine. talking Don't about- Don't call it rehabilitation then. Don't call it what, rehabilitation then. But what you're talking about goes directly to the punishment. And maybe we should address it, but we shouldn't address it as whether that's a crime. I think as, as, a, as a society, we have to have lines that we know are crimes. Selling drugs is a crime. Yes, you're right. And but I needed help. I didn't need to be, you know, sexually assaulted by cops. I didn't need to be forced to strip in front of cameras. I didn't need to be threatened. I didn't need to be, you know, met with violence. 
because I asked a question. And that's what's happening in these facilities. Sweden just refused to send to extradite an inmate over here to Texas because it, they said it are the prison systems are cruel and unusual punishment. You know, I met a handful of women, American women, that had been sterilized against their will. And this was before Trump filled up the ice camps and they were sterilizing refugee women. I met a handful of women, American women, that were sterilized against their will. And the one thing that they all had in common is not a single one of them was white. And now all of a sudden it's a great day for white lives everywhere with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This is not about crime. It's about forcing people into a position where they have no other choice and they're so desperate. They're, they, they do commit a crime. If you didn't force people into desperation, they wouldn't be committing these crimes. They wouldn't, their mental health wouldn't be deteriorating. I, I think that, you know, uh, Mr. Good's a great lawyer already, I could tell, because uh, you constructed a straw man. My argument is not that there are not crimes that should be sanctioned. My argument has never been, because I, I was look, I was a prosecutor. Uh, I've locked a lot of people up for crimes. Uh, so I, I, I believe in the criminal justice system. I believe this particular criminal justice system is largely dysfunctional and it needs reform. That doesn't mean it needs to be abolished. That doesn't mean it need to, that doesn't mean that people who commit acts against persons and property don't need to be sanctioned. But I also know that the the sort of uh, reflexive uh, act of deciding that the solution to the crime problem is to just lock up people, more people for longer periods, is not a solution. No. Uh, Ms. Kadowitz has pointed out what I think one of the core problems with American criminal justice is who we decide to criminalize. It's not that, not that it shouldn't be a crime, it's who do we decide to criminalize and for what? Criminals, people who we call criminals, in my experience, commit crimes because they appear to them wrongheadedly, appear to them wrongheadedly to be a better option than not. We need to give, in my view, people better options. If you give people better options, they will make better choices in the main, because most people are not inherently criminal. They perform criminal acts because they think wrongheadedly that what they're doing makes more sense than not committing that act. And we have to change that mentality. And that's not for the criminal justice system to solve. That's a societal problem. That's a societal problem because when we fix that, if we fix that as a result of better education, more job possibilities, better housing, better mental health, better physical health, that's not the criminal justice system's job to fix. But society needs to address that. And I believe if, if that, when and if that is addressed, we will wind up with fewer people in the criminal justice system, which I do not believe for one minute we ought to abolish. Well, I spoke to the sheriff of, of Tarrant County in Texas, and he said 80% of the people in his jail shared three things. One, they they didn't have a father in their family. Number two, they didn't have an education. And number three, they were impacted by some outside influence, such as drugs, gangs, mental health. And so what you're saying kind of flies in the face of that. We, you know, we've got these reforms that have been used across the country, which I think are just really decriminalizing crime. But who's stepping into the void? Gangs and organized crime. They're finding ways to make a killing off of shoplifting. We've seen, I saw a report just uh, this week from a national uh, federation uh, representing uh, shopping groups or retailers. They can't withstand $25,000 a day of shoplifting. 
and, and still stay in business and that they're being attacked when they close down their business for not providing you know that ability for people to shoplift every day. I think we, we have to address, you've made a good point of what the issues are, but those are societal issues. Until we decide to address those issues, I mean, people have to feel safe and we have to make sure that gangs and organized crime doesn't step into the void we're creating and take advantage and create and make a, sh- a crap load of money. Okay, well, here's the issue. 70% of women that are in prison have some form of domestic violence or sexual assault in their background. 96% of sex offenders don't even see a courtroom. And most of them are white men in power. So until we like deconstruct this system of white supremacy, we're all going to keep seeing crime. We're all going to keep suffering. And you know, no women in this woman in this country feels safe right now. Not a single one. We can't even stand up to our rapist, you know, and bring him before a judge and have them get properly charged. You know, they'll ask, oh, are you sure that's what happened? They don't ask, you know, a victim of a burglary or a robbery or, you know, a gang shooting, you know, are you sure that's what happened? But no, until we figure out, like deconstruct this patriarchal nightmare of white supremacy, where nothing's going to get better. I completely disagree that we have a white supremacy type criminal justice system. I'm seeing the opposite. I'm seeing where these criminal justice reforms, where nobody gets held in court, where the victims that are women are are having to go into hiding because they can't rely, rely on the criminal justice system because their perpetrator gets released. And if they don't go into hiding, they end up being killed like um, just, Melody Infinger's daughter. In- yeah, I just said rapist. Yes. Like most women fall apart, do drugs, go to jail because of men like that. And yes, it's men. But, but, but you know, I, I think, I think, you know, once upon a time, the federal government had a program called Aid for Families with Dependent Children, right? You may know about that. The Aid to Families with Dependent Children it was, a, was a precursor to the current welfare regime. It, it was reformed during the Clinton administration. But that administration, that program devalued men in the home. Mm-hmm. Yes. It produced families, family units with no males in the home. So you're right. What one of the things you wind up with is for good or bad, for whatever, that male influence is not in the, in the, in the family, in the, in the family structure, because it is economically cat- catastrophic for that male to be there. Now, yeah. that has been by government policy law reformed, but the remnants of it still remain. So I don't disagree with you that family structure is important. Gangs replace a hole in the soul of the gang members. I I absolutely believe that. But what we have to do is figure out what causes that hole? How do we fill that hole? And the hole is not filled by sending a gang member to a prison with a whole bunch of other gang members that only reinforces the hole in that person's soul. So, so I, mm-hmm. I, I, I am not, I am not uh, inexperienced in this. I, I don't believe that every criminal is innocent. I don't believe that. I believe that they are responsible for what they do and they should be sanctioned for it. What I have said earlier in this conversation is they are better served, society is better served, when they have better better choices to make in their life, whether to become a gangbanger, a shoplifter, 
a drug user, uh, a physical abuser, when they have the ability to make better decisions. People are not born inherently criminal. Something makes them behave that way, and we need to get to that root cause. But again, that's not the criminal justice uh, system's uh, job to solve. But the rest of the society doesn't want to fix that problem, and they dump it on the criminal justice system. So you get to be in the criminal justice system a mental health provider, a drug counselor, a family therapist. That's not what the system does well at all. They don't even have that. They just abuse people while they're in there and make them worse. And all the people I know that join gangs, they joined a gang because it was the only way they felt safe in their neighborhood. The cops weren't going to come help them. You know, they're they were orphaned or whatever happened. They were running from a foster home, you know, trying not to get sexually assaulted again. And the caseworkers didn't care. Like these are the reasons people fall apart and end up doing, you know, getting into a life of crime. Nobody plans it. No one's like, yeah, I want to be a gangster and I want to go to jail. Nobody, nobody wants that. You know, when you have a person in the criminal justice system, they go through a process, you know, you've got your first time offender. And, you know, they don't really have any, you mean, everybody gets them out or they get out on no bond because they're a first time offender. But when you go through and you get arrested more and more times, you first lose all your friends because they're the first people to go. Then your friend, family still stick up with you. And then your family goes. And then how do you know then you have, you then never, you have, have you ever been to jail? How do you know this? And then the last, then you have nobody there to bail you out. Those are the career criminals. And I, respectfully would say those are the people like we've already talked about have been made criminals and i think those people need to be st stay in jail i will agree with mr cook on one thing when they get to prison if they show through whatever programs or they show that they have uh that they can be redeemed i'm all for programs that will reward that but what i have a problem with is across the board we're going to release you without any showing that you've changed. And really what we're finding is they just go right back and pick up what they're doing. We can't tell our public no that they option. need to put up with more crime. We, they that have is no other option. Answer. You can't get out to nothing, no job, no anything, no food, and expect to just you know thrive in society after prison has already traumatized you. Let me ask I don't think anybody is suggesting that criminals uh, just be released in a revolving door. And by uh, the I, I don't believe that 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 works, and that's not the how it works. I I was I was legal counsel to a Department of Corrections, I I, I think I, and the Board of Parole. I think I know how they work a little bit, um, sure. but 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 as you know, Mr. Good, ninety plus percent of every person who is sentenced to a period of incarceration will be on the street at some point in his or her life, okay? Sure. Only and about 10% or less stay in jail for their natural lives. I was arrested so for a nonviolent so, crime. No so, bail. So, so the challenge is, what do we do with them while they're there? So, for example, in California, sure. I, believe. I agree. the Department of Corrections uh, abolished all the libraries. So if you're going to try to rehabilitate someone, give them the opportunity to learn to read, to write, to think, to maybe get a different job, you need to have in that institution some ability for them to read and learn. But they got rid of that because they thought that was um, a frill. It was not what punishment was about. I think that's wrongheaded. Now, again, we're dealing with the back end of the problem. We're dealing with people who have already yes. wound up mm -hmm. in the institution. I think that 
uh, cases I've, I've, I've been involved in, and uh, dare I say it, in, in, in Louisiana, in, in Alabama, first offenders wind up with money bail that they cannot make. They don't just get out. Now, in my, in my hometown, Washington, D.C., we have gotten rid of money, money bond, except in very uh, limited situations. So most everybody uh, who has no prior criminal history gets out on personal recognizance, okay? If you have committed a, an offense with a firearm, for example, and, and it is determined by a magistrate, a judge, that that act makes you a threat to public safety, then you are not automatically released. You may be released with conditions. You may not be released at all. So, so it's not true that they just wind up on the street after having committed a crime of violence. If, you, if you're charged with, with murder, a, a first or second degree homicide, you ain't getting out. That's not happening. And I don't care if it's your first homicide or your 12th. You're not getting out. I, well, we, I was arrested we, for a nonviolent crime. I had no bail and I sat there for 16 months waiting to get sentenced. Nonviolent drug dealers will sit there while rapists and murderers get bail. And I agree with you. You shouldn't just be let out. If you have a sex crime, you should not get out of jail until, it, had, until it gets worked out. We have a lot of studies that have come out now because of co during COVID. And, as, and I call that period as uh, bail reform on steroids. There's one report that's come out from the Yolo County uh, DA in the last couple of months. And I think those all those reports show consistently that uh, personal bonds, simple release, however you want to call it, release on no bond, those should be an option, but they're not the solution. Because the Yolo County report said the, as you increase the use of those types of releases, you increase crime against, across all spectrum misdemeanor to felony that just came out in the last two months and so that's, i think that, that, that's that's not that's not the data that that the data in the district of columbia doesn't support that and we've been we've gotten rid of cash bail 20 years ago that, that's not the data we have well the, there's data from california there's data from new york there's data from harris county that i'm aware of it creates a higher backlog because it has a much higher failure to appear rate so that creates chaos because you don't have time to resolve your cases I mean, you've got an 80% failure to appear rate on, on personal bonds in Harris County uh, on misdemeanor cases on PR bonds on according to HarrisCountyCourtWatch.com. I mean, it's a consistent data across the country of what we're seeing or what well, I'm I, You know, I, as, Mr., as Mr. Taylor knows, I, I teach a course in local government. I, I sort of look at this data because it's part sure. of what you got to do to stay current. I don't believe that's the data in Philadelphia. I don't believe that's what the data says in New York City. I don't believe that's what the data says in Los Angeles. I can't tell you about Harris County because I just can't remember it. Uh, what what Houston's is? Uh, well, but Harris County, the DA, the DA there issued a report. She's a Democrat. She said sure. that the failure to appear rate using personal bonds was at least fifty percent. And okay. so you've got uh, the DA, who is also a Democrat in Yellow County in California, right. who's a liberal Democrat, saying that it has a substantial higher failure to appear rate for. Uh, uh, zero bail versus a surety bond, and that that increases crime, increases crime, and so and recidivism, and so I I think those are consistent with each other. Well, how can you expect people to respect the courts and show up to their own court date when we have people like Lauren Boebert, who's too good to show up to her own criminal court hearings? But I don't her hear any solutions. Kid. I don't hear any solutions from you. All I hear is 
nobody should be held accountable for anything because all these bad things are happening. I never said people shouldn't be held accountable. I never said people shouldn't be held accountable. I said they shouldn't be abused and then have it called rehabilitation. And I'm saying people wouldn't have committed these crimes if they weren't forced into a corner by society that's failing them. We're living in a dystopian nightmare. You know what would help people? Universal health care. That would get rid of a lot of problems. You know what would help people? Big pharma being held accountable for turning everyone into drug addicts. So let me ask this question in light of what uh, a point that uh, Attorney uh, Good uh, said earlier. Um, I was looking at a poll from May of 2022. Um, of course, that was before the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And of course, there are other factors to consider here. But according to this, toll, this, this poll, you, you actually had more Americans, the majority of Americans, actually saying that they trust Republicans more than Democrats to manage key areas like crime. Um, you know, you, you had about close to 50 percent of voters saying they would prefer a Republican candidate to handle the issue crime. Now, fast forward to the 2022 election. Polls showed that Lee Zeldin, like we were mentioning earlier, New York and, and, and Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania made gains after they aired their crime ads. Uh, but neither of them, of course, prevailed in the end. Similarly, in the House race for for uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, the Raleigh area, um, you had State Senator Wiley Nickel defeating Republican Bo Hines, despite GOP ads painting Nickel, a longtime criminal defense attorney, as the criminal choice for Congress. Then there are more examples in prosecutor races. In Dallas County, you had a Democratic uh, district attorney, uh, John uh, Kreselot, winning re-election um, even after his opponent, um, you know, portrayed him as soft on crime. And, and so there seems to be a trend here there. The ads seem to have a reson you know, resonated with a, a, a segment of the population. Polls seem to reflect that earlier on in the year of 2022. But then when we get to election day, it's a different story. Um, to your point, Mr. Good, you know, because you had mentioned that you don't believe that the status quo was going to be something that the Americans going to be comfortable with in the long term. Um, why is it that that what you're saying hasn't kicked in yet? Um, as you know, it would be reflected in the outcomes of some of these close um, house races and, 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 and local races in 2022. Well, I think uh, crime is cyclical. And I think if you uh, just go back to the 60s, we had a period of time where we felt safe. And so we were forgiving and uh, en enacted uh, crime policy that uh, resulted in more crime. And as, as a result, you saw a backlash and it didn't happen overnight. I think this time the cycle is is swinging to the left much quicker because of the digital age. And so it's been slower to swing back. But I would even but I would still mention, you know, the D.A. in Dallas County that you mentioned, he before the election, he reversed his policy that was like California, that he wasn't going to prosecute crime uh, below uh, nine hundred fifty dollars. He reversed that. So he would he only did that because he it was hurting political politically. You've, and I would mention the two races, you know, the New York and. And the Dr. Oz race, again, I think there were other issues there, but I think it just uh, wasn't the, it had to swing back, swung back uh, enough by that point. And I think that the uh, Democrats, frankly, right before the election said that it was a non-issue, that crime wasn't really an issue. And I think uh, if they continue that position now, uh, we will see a, a swing to the right much quicker and much further. And I well, think that's why you see these Democrats changing their policies to be more centric or in line with uh, criminal justice issues. Well, I mean, look, I, I think I think you, you can't, as I said earlier, um, 
perception is reality in a lot of ways. I think the object, an objective look at the data doesn't support the level of anxiety that the people have about crime, but that's irrelevant because if people feel unsafe in their homes, feel unsafe in their cars, feel unsafe wherever they go about their day, that's what's important. And as a, uh, an elected official, a public policymaker, you've got to respond to that. And, and the question then gets to be, what is your response? So I think part, I would suggest that part of your response has to be to try to get, to pe get people to focus on the reality as opposed to the perception that they have, but also to look at what you're doing, whether it is bail reform or not, whether it is mandatory minimum sentences or not, whether it is the number of prosecutors or police officers you have in the criminal justice system. You need to look at all those things and figure out what, what is going to actually make a difference. As I said, the public doesn't often enough engage in the discussion that is, I think, critical to government, which is what kind of government do you want and what are you willing to pay for? it? Because you can't have everything unless you want to tax yourself out of existence. So the question then gets to be from a collective point of view, what kind of government, what kind of criminal justice system do we want to have and what are we willing to pay for? Yeah. And, I'd rather have that. more colleges than prisons in America. And I like to see, you know, politicians stop gaslighting certain communities. Like you see it at the border of Texas. They're blaming the car. They're saying the cartel is having refugees, you know, stock up on drugs and bring them across the border. When in fact, 86% of the people getting busted bringing drugs across the border is Americans. You know, that's that crap LePage pulled. I remember sitting in prison, watching him on TV, and he's going, black thugs from the hood come up to Maine and impregnate our white women and flood our streets with drugs. And I'm sitting there like I was a drug dealer. I participated in that. And the only reason these people are coming up from the cities is because white police informants and white addicts are going down to get them. Well, Mr. Like, Cook, what I do agree- communities. Mr. Cook, I agree with part of what you said, but there's a little bit I disagree with, and that is I think crime is up, and I think it's up substantially. The problem is your point is it could, it could get a lot worse, or it's been a lot worse historically, and I don't think the public uh, should have to be measuring public safety by saying, well, it, it's gotten a lot worse, but it could get so much more before it's like what it was 20 years ago. I don't think that's a, I don't think the public will accept that, and I think we have uh, in our urban areas, a disproportionate crime increase. I think we have a, a crime problem in our urban cities. Uh, and I think it's drug related and I think it's uh, uh, career criminals and I think it's organized crime. And we're ignoring those. And I would challenge I you, I, I would say, I, I would say, what, what, are our, what are our elected officials doing different in our urban areas to decriminalize those crimes that they if, they, if they were in their but, if they were they in their pocket if they were in the pocket of organized crime what would they be doing different than what they're doing currently no 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 but they aren't decriminalizing it it's still it's still against the law in the district of columbia new york city chicago law any urban area to sell drugs there's a federal controlled substances act there are okay. state versions of the controlled substances act it is not it is not because those those behaviors have been decriminalized okay that that's just not true well, let's look at just California as an example. We changed from a felony to a misdemeanor, theft under $950. And then in the urban areas, the uh, prosecutors have said, we're not going 
to prosecute that crime. And so stores are closing because they can't withstand $25,000 a day in uh, shoplifting. Stores, stores are now closing because you have insurance. stores are now closing because they can't provide a safe work environment for their employees. I mean, it, I mean, what are you saying that's not happening? Are you saying that's no, not no, happening? No, 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 I, I would say to you, because it, 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 it happened here. Um, Walmart had a store in Northeast Washington that was closed largely because of what they call euphemistically in the, in the business shrinkage, which is basically theft. Uh, inventory shrank uh, from what it was delivered through the through the, the delivery door sure. and, and it's gone. So I, I clearly that is an issue. And I rep, I've represented grocery chains. And I know that part of the calculus for a grocery chain is if I have my store security accost someone who I believe is shoplifting and they are wrong, it costs me X dollars. It's easier for me to let them go out the door than to pay the cost of possibly being wrong. So it's, it's part of the calculus of, of a store. And you're right. Stores can't do that forever without an, an, an economic downside. But that is not... In, in the District of Columbia, which I know firsthand, is not a prevalent thing. There, there, there's been one store that closed because of shrinkage out of many stores in the city. Uh, but, but, but the shoplifting thing is not the same as armed robbery. The shoplifting thing is not the same as drug sales. Now, people shoplift to make money. They may make that money for drugs. They may make that money just to put food on their table. One of the big features of shoplifting in the District of Columbia is that people steal meat from the grocery stores and sell it to food trucks, okay? Because the food truck people are complicit in keeping their costs down by buying stolen meat from grocery stores. So all of it is not drug related. All of well, it- Okay, but my, okay, so let me give you an example. I actually know Washington DC because my daughter spent a semester in DC. I'm gonna shock you. She interned in the White House she was one of three interns that was in the West Wing every day. And so she, for a semester. And, you know, Washington, D.C. is not a good example to hold up on criminal justice reform. It, Washington, D.C. is an unsafe place. It has a lot of crime. It has more crime than the average uh, urban area in the, in, the, in the country. No, that's just not true. Look, I, I've lived here my entire life. Okay, I've lived here my entire life. Uh, I look at the data. It is sure. not, it, you know, uh, what, 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 what metrics are you using? Washington's homicide rate is higher than New York City's. Absolutely. It's not higher than Chicago's. It's not higher than St. Louis. It's not higher than Omaha, Nebraska. It's higher than some. It's lower than some. It is not an inherently unsafe city. Our crime rate for property crimes is not higher than New York City's, for example. So, so yes, we have crime. And yes, we have crime at a rate that is higher than I would argue is acceptable. And I'm not, I'm not using as a metric 1960 or 1968 or 1987 or, or anything like that. It's unacceptable by any sort of objective standards you want to use, okay? So I'm not defending it by saying this is, a, this is the all-American city and everybody ought to walk around feeling safe. It's unacceptable. And we need, here we, need to get a handle on that. We need to figure out why that is and what we can do to fix it. And it is not, you know, we have recidivism just like every other jurisdiction. Uh, but but our 
uh, felons aren't incarcerated here in the District of Columbia. They're they're incarcerated in federal prisons across the country. Okay, we don't control really when they get out. So so we're not creating that recidivism in, in terms felonism of- creates recidivism. You can't get a place to live. You can't you you can't get a job. You can't you, you can't get anything. And you know what do you you expect people to what be homeless on the street and not be able to feed their family just because they're a felon? They've served their time. I understand if they're a sex offender, blacklist them. But when you you have nonviolent you know drug dealers that were just trying to get by and pay their rent get their, you know, kids stuff paid for. And so they sold this, they sold their prescription. They, they sold their medication. And now all of a sudden they're labeled a drug dealer and then they want to get out, move on with their life. No one's going to hire them. No one's going to give them a, a place to rent. And guess what? You end up breaking the law again because you have no other option. You've exhausted, you've exhausted every possible you know, avenue to get your life back. And there's just no help. They give you a $50 bus ticket, like, oh, good luck. We've completely traumatized you and extorted you for your free, you know, cheap inmate labor. And now you're going to have fun in society when your brain's been completely rewired. You know, you're on medications that you can't pay for now. And yeah, good luck finding a place to live. You know, Mr. Cook, I think you and I have a lot of agreement. I think the difference between us if I was to say what I think the difference between us is, I think the difference is um, it's a complex issue. I mean, there, it's, there are societal issues that need to be addressed. And those are, I mean, almost an elusive problem. And I think where we differ is what do we address first? I think we have to get our public feelings safe first. And then we have to branch out to those other things because addressing fathers and families and addressing uh, job opportunities, those are going to take years and years and years. I put public safety first, and I, I think the difference between us is I don't think you you do as much. And that's the, really, I think, the only difference I see between us. Well, I, 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 think you, I think you have to build a railroad and run a railroad at the same time. I think you can do more than one thing at a time. I think, I think Ms. McCotowitz <laughs> is, is right. One of the things I've said for a long time is that we don't believe as a society, we don't believe that paying your debt to society by going to prison is over when you leave. We don't do that. We continue to sanction people who have been imprisoned after they leave. In, in my hometown, high, very high cost of living. So if you cannot afford a place to live, feed your family, whatever, it creates a real problem. And, and we, you know, one of the things that people do in criminal reform is that they, they, they it's like um, check the block, you know, on a job application. If you have to check on the block that you've ever been arrested or you've ever been incarcerated, if you check that block, you never get the interview. You, you, your application goes into the circular file. We've changed the law here in the District of Columbia that that an employer can't ask that question on an employment application. Now, the employer may will, will be able to ask that question in a in a back and forth in an interview, but they can't ask it on the application as a as a as a as a pre cursor to getting even even getting the interview but but i say that because things like check, not putting that on your application or creating these barriers to employment wind up with people working in what we euphemistically call the paper hat industry you're working in a fast food joint with a little paper hat on for minimum wage and you can't live in this city because the cost of living is so high we need to on the back side of incarceration 
be true to the idea that if you've made a mistake, if you wind up incarcerated, and if you truly want to walk the straight and narrow going forward, we need to help that person do that. And 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 if you don't walk the straight and narrow, there's an increased sanction. I'm not I'm not averse to that. But we need to give people a genuine opportunity to walk the straight and narrow, as opposed to what Ms. McConaughey said, is give them a $50 bus ticket or give them a crisp $50 bill when they leave the joint and say, have a happy life. That is not a way to make a transition after spending a year or five years or seven and a half years in prison. It doesn't transition that person. And then we're surprised or upset with them because they go back to what they know, which is hustling on the street, committing a crime, hitting you in the head and taking your wallet or hijacking your car. That we still have they, housing when they're in prison. Another crime, and they need to be punished for it. But we, if we want them to behave differently, we've got to give them different choices. Well, I, okay, in theory, I agree with you. But in practice, what we come and what we see is uh, the government is terrible at implementing those types of programs. And so we just, uh, across the board, we make decisions. Uh, you saw it in California where the courts just got tired of, of the state doing stuff, so they just ordered them to release a number, a certain number of, of defendants from prison. So th the problem I have is it ends up being across the board release, and it, it includes people who should not be released, who have no intention of walking the straight and narrow, and there's no additional punishment when they fail to do so. And I think that's what we're seeing across the country. When I see criminal justice reform, especially bail reform, you know, there's only three types of release. When someone's been arrested, there's either a surety bond or simple release, whether it's a PR bond or a personal bond or it's a, a release with no bond, or there's um, a cash bond, depending on where you are. And that's it. Well, the, the, the best appearance rate that's going to get your case through the system proven over and over again is a surety bond. Everything else has a humongous failure to appear rate. And so that's why I'm saying they should be an option. They're not the solution. They just make the system worse. And we nobody wants to look at the numbers and say, you're right, but that's what this what we're seeing in reality over and over again. Well, I gotta tell you, you know, in the criminal justice system here, like I said, we have personal recognizance as the default release methodology. And we don't have your words, a humongous uh failure to appear rate. We we just don't. Now, well, I, do, I have looked at y'all's system, and y'all have a, a very large pretrial services department right. at a humongous cost. So I would argue that the Washington, D.C. model is a little different because okay. it is doing the things that the private industry does that other counties just can't, I mean, other states can't afford. When New York adopted a statewide pretrial services department in the New Jersey plan, it, it you know, they had to raise taxes a couple of times to pay for it because it just kept running out of money. Texas could never afford to adopt a statewide pretrial services department to do the job that the private industry does. So I agree with you. Washington, D.C. is probably a little different, but they're spending out the wazoo on a pretrial services department that states can't afford. But but no, no. What's As, I, as we just talked about, states choose not to afford it, not can't afford it. They mm. choose not to afford it. Again, it's about choices that you make. What do you want to spend money on? If you think the long-term benefit to your jurisdiction is best realized by spending money on a pretrial services agency in terms of your criminal justice, because you'll have fewer people in it and you'll spend less money building and maintaining prisons, maybe that's the strategy that works for you. I, I can't tell you what to do in Kentucky or, or Alabama or Ohio, 
But I'm saying that's part of what you have to think through. It's it's not just it's got to be this or it's got to be that. It is not inevitable that someone who is arrested will commit another offense. It is not inevitable because other because to say that means they're inherently criminal and you're never going to fix them. I don't believe that. I don't think anything in human experience says that it is a, that it is an inevitability that any human will commit a crime from the at the after the instant of their birth. So we got to figure out how to get to the triggers, the mechanisms that put them on that path. And once they get on it, if we can get them off that path, because because I think you and I agree on this point. At some point, the line crosses between the people who behave normally and the people who behave abnormally. And when those lines cross, society ceases to exist. Okay, because you can only tolerate a certain percentage of abnormal behavior in your society before it begins to collapse from the inside. And until we, and we've got to recognize that and decide how can we keep this line, this abnormal line from going, continuing to go up or increasing the, the, the rate of increase. That is an investment that society, societally we need to make, because if we force people into criminal behavior, if we don't address behavioral issues that cause some of the acting out behavior, the criminal behavior, if we don't do that, then we're dooming ourselves to a loop that we can never get out of. So, so I'm, I'm saying we need to have that conversation. I'm yeah. not about reform for the sake of reform and, and to have a big party and say, well, we got rid of bail, so life is good. It ain't that easy. It never is going to no. be that easy. No, all bail, all the bail system does is allow really dangerous rich criminals to get out and get mm. away with what you, and that's what I, the problem I have with no, our system. that's not like, true. People that's not with true. The rip, people with money get get away with with the crimes they commit, and it's the that's poor true. who suffer. Actually, I, yeah, I don't agree with I've that. Seen, I don't I've agree with that. Been to prison. I think, I think the point she's making does have some validity because if 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 money bail is your default position, either surety or cash, and you say the best way to assure your your appearance at trial is you've got a you've got a horse, you got a you got a dog in the fight, you got money at risk. If you got a lot of money, you can get out for the same thing that somebody has done that doesn't have a lot of money. And, I would and, say that, and that's not right. Because because if they're dangerous, if they're dangerous, the amount of money they have should be irrelevant. OK, I would say this completely differently. I would say, you know, we've talked about the spectrum of people as they go through the criminal justice system and they're right. made a, a, a career criminal. The bail industry, the private surety industry is dealing with families. And so as and the families are the ones that are going to have the most influence to get the defendant to turn around and become a productive citizen. And if you are cutting off the ability for the private industry to deal with families, then you are damning certain defendants to become career criminals when they could have been turned around and you're doing it just like her laughing saying, oh yeah, we, we just need to treat it. But I mean, look, when when one system has a much lower failure to appear rate, and what you're talking about releasing everybody else has a much higher failure to appear rate, it's not the solution. And is until we have a solution that does as well or better, we shouldn't be throwing out the bathwater with the baby. So you should be traumatizing people and abusing them because they're nonviolent criminals. Like you're okay with that. I had conservatives telling me if you don't want to get raped by cops, then don't go to jail. 
Just say you're okay with cops being predators. And it's funny because Republicans want to scream about crime, but they're real quick to put guns in everyone's hands and fight for those rights. And then they wonder why everyone's shooting people and why there are murderers everywhere. I am respectfully, your your argument is illogical on that. Look, I've represented so-called drug kingpins, okay? Mm -hmm. Make a lot of money selling drugs. Sure. You tell them money bond for you, security bond for you is a million and a half dollars. They go in the backyard, dig it up, give you a million and a half dollars. They're out in the street, continuing to pull that poison in our community. You have a more, uh, a lower level drug guy, part of the same conspiracy, doing the same thing, but he ain't got a million and a half dollars. So he's still locked up. The crime, the violence associated with it is still going on because this guy had money. Now, it, it, what, what we do here is if you are responsible for that kind of criminal behavior, there is no amount of money that can protect the public from your behavior. So you're not getting out, okay? We, we, we don't care whether bail bondsman has is, is, is been given your, your fabulous home uh, as collateral. You're not getting out because you are a danger to the community because of your behavior, okay? The charge behavior. Sure, sure, but that is a that is a release detain uh, pretrial system, and that's what the federal system uses. Which I understand why DC would use that as well. But the problem is the majority no, of the states are. don't have the infrastructure to hold like the federal courts do. Seventy percent of the people that are arrested are detained. I was federal, so I, was I don't federal think case. that that's an option. Just detaining seventy percent of the people arrested is not an option. We don't detain 70% of the people in, in the federal system. I, I, I practice in federal court here. We don't Absolutely. detain 70% of them here. No, we don't. I sat for 16 we, months we, in the we, county we, jail we, before we, I went to prison. I was a nonviolent drug dealer, and I sat no bail for 16 months. So, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, don't, I, I can't speak to other jurisdictions. I fun, pr- fundamentally practice here. But, but I know in the federal system here, Drug offenses, uh, uh, financial offenses, uh, crimes of violence. We don't detain seventy percent of. Them. Um, well, I, I, I will a, say, I was an assistant U.S. attorney. I, 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 I just it, it, that just never was what we did. Well, my wife is all as a staff attorney. She's also an attorney. She's a staff attorney for a federal judge here in East, uh, the Eastern District of Texas. I mean, okay. that's, I mean, those are, I'm not relying upon just stuff I made up. I'm relying no, no, upon no, no. numbers. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you about what goes on in, in the Eastern District of Texas. I'm just talking about what's, what's happening in D.C., which I, which no, I just No, I think that's about. the average nationwide. I really No, do. in Texas, they let out domestic violent abusers, you know, and let them have guns. And then they wonder why they're shooting people. You know, you know, I mean, look, I, 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 I just, I don't have the numbers. I'm not fluent with them, so I can't do it right sure. off my head. But, but I, I'll look at that. But, but I, I just tell you from, from judges I know, I know a lot of them. You know, uh, and from cases. Hey, I, I have that data. I'll send it to the host, and he can forward okay, it to please, you. Please, please. I, I, you know, Absolutely. East, East District of Texas, I, I can't speak to, but I just don't. No, I think that's like the nationwide average. So and, let me, let me, let me. And, hey, and I'll, I'll even make this deal with you. If I don't have those numbers, I will send him a, an email saying I was mistaken. I don't have this. I'm that confident about my numbers. You don't have to do that. Everybody can be wrong. I mean, I, look, I can be wrong. <laughs> no, I'm not wrong on this. I'll, I'll provide okay. it to you. Okay. So, so let me interject because we only have about a 
few minutes remaining, three minutes remaining in the show. And I do want to get to the first step act. Uh, you know, we saw, you know, reforming prisons from the inside being a central key in local races. You know, you had, for instance, the Los Angeles Sheriff, Alex uh, Villanueva, uh, losing to former Long, uh, Long Beach Police Chief Robert Luna, who promised to work more closely with jail oversight entities. And in B Bristol County, Massachusetts, local Mayor Paul uh, Harrow, the Democrat, ousted Sheriff Thomas Hodgson, a Republican, um, for similar reasons. Now, when you look at the First Step Act, which was signed into law by President Donald Trump in 2018, you see he that- He only signed that like after the prisons filled up. Like after he was giving max mandatory minimums and the prisons were filling up. He only did that after there was a huge problem that he caused. I was in there when it happened. Yes, ma'am. Let me let me just throw in some facts real quick before we jump in. But to your point, the, man the mandatory minimums for pr uh, prior serious drug felonies uh, were reduced under this bill. Prisoners serving life sentences under the three strikes penalty were now able to have their sentences reduced to 25 years. Mandatory min minimums of 20 years were reduced to 15 years. Serious violent felonies uh, were added to the three strikes enhancement penalty. And under the new law, judges were able to depart from mandatory minimums when sentencing defendants uh, with up to four criminal history points. Um, and ex that excluded misdemeanors. And defendants with three points, I'm uh, sorry, defendants with three-point offenses or two-point violent offenses uh, were to be restricted. I want to get your thoughts as to whether that this was an effective piece of legislation moving forward. Um, to help address many of the problems that we were talking about tonight? I would say I think it's a, a, an example of an across-the-board bill, which I pose. I have no problem with, hey, they're making uh, these efforts. They're showing signs that they want to become a productive element. I want to do anything we can for anyone that does that. But I am opposed to across-the-board release whether they're showing that they have a conscience or not showing they have a conscience. I don't think there should be an across the board release either. They were letting out predators that way. Like that doesn't work. But you know, I think what Obama did was better than what Trump did when Obama had the two point reduction, you know, all these people who had already spent all these years in prison who were like ready for their second chance. They had learned their lesson and, you know, wanted to go home. Like all those people did very, most of them did very well. I mean, some of them had really bad trauma and ended up going back. But, you know, Obama's two point reduction, I think, did a lot more than, you know, the First Step Act. I mean, yeah, the First Step Act let a lot of people out. But, you know, it was after, you know, he filled all the prisons up. Like, and it was mostly Spanish people and, you know, the ICE the ice raids that went on, like, I mean, he cut the budget in half and they were running out of food for us. So he, like, I think he knew he had to do something to like clean up his mess that his administration created. Well, you know, I, I, I hear you, but, but, but I think it, it gets back to what kind of government do you want? I mean, because if you're going to have a case by case analysis, which I'm not opposed to, it's expensive because you've got to have staff to process that and to make these assessments and to review them and to make sure they're they're coherent. And I think what the what the government opted to do was fiscally driven, which is the the, the best way to do this with the least grief in terms of a a, a cadre of people who are going to do this and the um, uh, 
the inevitable appeals when people say you miscalculated, you misjudged me, you misassessed me, and I'm entitled to some kind of appellate review of your decision. And they said, rather than do that, we'll do across the board. Now, I think across the board presents another set of problems, which I think are unacceptable. I think you're right. So, so the, but again, it gets back to what do we want to invest in? If we, if we want to look at these people on a case-by-case basis and, and, and release the, the people who have a high probability of walking the straight and narrow and keeping the ones who don't, that's, that's, a, that's an administrative cost that we've got to decide we want to, want to pay for. You know, I agree with that. I think that it is what do we want to pay for? The problem I have is the bail reform or the criminal justice reform we've seen the last few years, I think, has drawn a new line that has increased crime uh, disproportionately. Because the more criminal, I think we would all agree, the more criminals you release, the more crime you're going to have. We've released too many criminals, and I think we're suffering more crime as a result. Well, thank you all so much for making this episode one of the best. This is interesting. One of the most informative and and very well-spirited. Um, you know, the thing I'm proud of about a platform like this, that at the end of the day, even though we may disagree, we could still, you know, find points of common ground and still, you know, agree to disagree civilly. So thank you, Attorney uh, Ken Good, for making time. Thank Professor Cohen for making time out of your busy schedule. Of course, uh, Ms. Mit- uh, let me, Migatowix, thank you so much for, for, you know, being a first-time guest. I'm so excited to have, have had your insight represented on the show tonight. So with that being said, that will conclude. Um, episode 103, episode 103 of the Political Mike Podcast. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, it's Mike Taylor, the host of the Political Mike Podcast. If you like what you heard tonight, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, I also want to ask you to please follow along on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Amazon Music. You can also follow along and keep up with the conversation through our Telegram channel. Follow us on Twitter at, at ThePolyMike, and follow us on Instagram. Thank you so much, and no matter what part of the political spectrum that you fall on, I want to encourage you to stay engaged, stay a part of the conversation, and stay informed. Thank you.